So everyone remembers their first car, yes? Well, what, what were some models of your first car? Let's hear them. <laughs> Vega, wow. Uh, <laughs> well, what else? What are some others? Uh, you, know, you know what mine was? I know you're going to be really impressed. It was a, it was a decade-old Chevrolet Impala. I wasn't nearly as good of a response as I needed. Let's try it again. I had a decade-old Chevrolet Impala. Yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't feel that way when I had it um, at all. But at least it ran and at least it rolled and got me where I was going. After my first year in college, I took that Chevrolet Impala to Arkansas, drove it over to Arkansas to sell books door to door for the summer. Is that a scary thought or what? You open, you're just going through a normal day and all of a sudden you open your door and there I am holding my book satchel and say, hi, my name's Matt Hurd and I know these are some books that you'd be interested in. Let me tell you why. Uh, one of the goals for the summer obviously was to make some money and your check at the end of the summer from the, company, the book company uh, would be larger according to how much you spent. So the less expenses that you incurred throughout the summer, the larger your check was at the end of the summer. So we skimped everywhere we could, where we stayed, uh, what we ate. And my roommate and I would therefore wait for a while to do our laundry. We wouldn't want to do it all because it takes a while. And we, there's this one place we went for a special treat. It was a gas station slash laundromat slash restaurant. We're talking high class. And uh, so we just treat ourselves. And so we, uh, one particular evening, I pulled up in my Chevrolet Impala and the, the, the gas pumps right here, the roads out here, gas pumps are here, laundromat here, restaurant there, garage over here. So I pull up right in front of the laundromat because we had so much laundry, put my Impala in park, left the driver's door open, went inside to unload the laundry. While we're doing that, I start hearing a horn blaring out in the gas pump area. Didn't pay much attention to it at first, but after a while, somebody is upset because it wasn't honk, honk, honk. It was just laying on the horn. So I came out and realized what had happened. To my horror, my Chevrolet Impala had jumped out of park and gone into reverse and then started a slow path going backwards. But because of the way I'd pulled in and the way the front tires were, it was coming back the same way. And so it was coming along parallel. So it turned and was coming parallel to another car that was pumping, getting, getting some gas. That guy was inside somewhere. His wife was sitting in the passenger seat. She's the one that's laying on the horn because she can do nothing else. She see this driverless car coming back towards her, comes parallel right next to her, is trapping her. Amazingly, my, uh, my Impala did not scrape the side of her car. But what stopped my Impala from rolling any further was my front door. The front driver's side door caught on the front right bumper of her car and stopped. Okay, it bent a little bit as well, <laughs> actually quite a bit. So I apologized to the woman. I came in, got in the passenger side, came over, climbed in, drove that car over to a corner of the lot and tried to shut the door and it wouldn't budge. It's just straight out there. 
So being a very ingenious college student, I went over, and, and mechanically inclined, I went over to the mechanic in the garage, and I said, hey, do you have a sledgehammer I could borrow? <laughs> he said, what do you need a sledgehammer for? I said, well, my, my, my door is uh, bent, and I need to bend it back. He said, are you kidding me? That's actually not what he said, but that's what I'll, how I'll translate it. I said, yeah, I think it'll be all right. So I go over, proceed to go over to the side after apologizing to the woman for all the trauma I caused her. I go over to that corner of the gas station lot and I proceeded with that sledgehammer, I proceeded to beat the living daylights out of the hinge of my door to get it to close. And then finally it did. I, I, there was about, oh, four inches left that it just, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't fix. And uh, but I felt like I had made some progress. Now, while I was beating the living daylights out of the hinge of my door with the sledgehammer, this good old Arkansas boy, very friendly guy, came up in his pickup truck and rolled down his window and looked at me. And I, you know, I'm got the sledgehammer. I look up and how you doing? He's, uh, he says, I'm pretty good. Uh, how are you doing? And I said, good. And he said, you need some help? I said, no, I, I got it. I'm, I'm doing all right. He said, yeah, that's what I figured. And he drove off. Anybody's beating up on their car with a sledgehammer, you know, they probably do need some help. So I proceeded to drive around with that four inch gap. The rest of the summer, I got in and out either on the passenger side or through the window on the driver's side. I'd pull up at stoplights and well-meaning people would roll down the window and said, hey, your door's open. I know it's open, it doesn't move. About a week later, I'm coming to a traffic light in town, and uh, it's, it's a ways in the distance, but before I get to the line of cars that was stopped, a kickball comes bouncing out in front of my car and a little boy chasing it, and so I slammed on the brakes. And then he stopped and the ball went on, and therefore I released the brakes. Now, what happened when I did that pump of the brakes is I had a luxury, this is a luxury automobile, and I had a luxury accessory. It was a, a, a little trash can that was on, over that transmission hump that was in some of those cars. And that trash can, when I pumped the brakes, proceeded to tumble down into the area where my feet was and lean up against the brake pedal. When I released the gas pedal, that trash, little trash container wedged behind the brake. I didn't know that at the time until about 100 feet later, I'm approaching the stopped line of cars at the traffic light, and there is a pickup truck, souped up pickup truck with a steel girder as a bumper, and I think, all right, I need to stop, and I go to press the brake, and nothing happens. And I, I finally did stop with the kind assistance of that steel girder that was behaving as a bumper. Didn't bother his truck at all. It demolished my front grill, buckled the hood, punctured the radiator, I get out through the passenger side door because I can't open the other. I'm there, I'm scratching my head, steam is going everywhere. The guy is about to drive off because it hasn't bothered his car. I'm standing in the middle of the intersection. People are all coming around me and a well-meaning Arkansas fella came up, rolled down his window, he's in a pickup truck. Said, need some help? I said, no, no, I'm good. I, I got it. Appreciate it. <laughs> Two days later, I fixed 
my car again. You can imagine, yeah, I told you how I fixed it the first time. So this time, I got the stuff poured in the radiator, got some tape, fixed that. The way I fixed the hood of the car that was buckled is I got up on top of the hood and jumped down to bend it back. Now, it wouldn't latch, so the way that I latched it is through some bailing wire. So the bailing wire was holding my hood, keeping it, and so I thought, well, I'll just undo it when I go to check the oil and all that. Two days later, I'm driving down the highway, going about 50 miles an hour, it's a windy day. I'm headed out to some rural areas to change their lives with the books I was selling and the car I was driving. And while I'm going, a gust of wind came under the hood of that car just right, and that bailing wire broke and the hood peeled back over my windshield. While I was driving 50 miles an hour, I was totally blinded. I thankfully was not in any traffic and eased over to the side of the road and stopped. I'm staring at the bird droppings on top of the hood of my car that are now about a foot and a half away from me, sweltering in the Arkansas heat. And I heard the gravel move as a vehicle approached. <laughs> and it was a pickup truck with a friendly Arkansas fellow who leaned over and opened the right side, the passenger side window and looked at me and said, hey buddy, need some help? You know what I said? I do. That would be really, really good. It's amazing what pride can do to us, isn't it? make us resistant to saying that we actually need help. But it's actually that statement, that reality that's uttered by Jesus at the very beginning of the greatest sermon to ever be preached and recorded. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Need some help? Now, it doesn't say those exact words, but it's the meaning of the very first, what we know as the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude is referring to acknowledging that we actually need help. If you've got your Bible, turn to the fourth chapter of Matthew. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter five. But in the end of chapter four, we get the context. Verse 23, Matthew chapter 4. If you, if you don't own a Bible, by the way, just ask us in the back. We'd love to give you one. And if you do have a Bible, just don't have it with you, you can refer to the screens. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the what? Okay, I'm... I've got time. I don't have another service till tomorrow night. So proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. I want you to remember that word, kingdom. And healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, which is more of a rural peasant area, uh, agriculture was there. The Decapolis. It's a group of 10 cities, very sophisticated Roman cities, G Greeks, the people that were not part of Israel or the, the Jewish nation, not religious at all. Jerusalem, that's the sophisticated religious crowd of, of the Jews. Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. In other words, 
all socioeconomic statuses, all geographical areas, races, all of a sudden, the good news of the kingdom is having an impact. Verse 1, Matthew 5, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. Several times in Matthew's gospel, it's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew's writing primarily for a, a Jewish audience. And several times mountains are mentioned and there's always a little bit of a twist to it. And a lot of scholars think that he was doing the parallel and like here, uh, the, Moses, the father of Judaism, went up on a mountain and got the 10 commandments. Jesus is going up on the mountainside to bring in the new covenant. He goes up from the mountainside and sat down. That's not just a sidebar common, that's a very specific reference to the authority that Jesus possessed. He was sitting down, that's what a rabbi would do. So it was a place of authority. When rabbis would instruct, they would sit down. And when they sat down, people knew it's time to listen. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So throughout Jesus' teaching his disciples, that's not just the 12, it's a larger group than that, but, but when Jesus was teaching them, he was teaching to crowds of others who would over, kind of oversee, kind of listen in, eavesdrop a little bit and say, what's happening here? And that's why more and more people were learning to follow him. And then here's what he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Eight statements that have since become known as the Beatitudes. And that's the journey we're going to take through this text, through the Beatitudes. And it hinges around that word that comes up over and over and over, eight times, blessed, 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 blessed. What is blessed? We use blessed. It's not just a religious word. Somebody sneezes, what do you say? Bless you. You have a cat that's naughty and misbehaves. You come home from work and they just trash the place. What do you say? That blessed cat. You have a grandmother who says, bless my soul. You close an email with blessings. Somebody has a great event. Wow, that was a blessed ceremony that we all attended. You had a rough patch. Lost your job last year, but all of a sudden it turned out to be a what in disguise? Blessing. blessing. What's blessing? We use it all the time. We ask God to bless America. What is it? A couple of questions come up immediately. What does it mean and then how does it happen? So what does it mean? A lot of people think blessed means happy. 
yes, but it's more full than that, but you can take it as just a superficial happiness. And then if you take it in a superficial way like that, then how does it happen? you employ superficial means to achieve superficial happiness. I was actually reading an email newsletter about uh, TV consumption and advertising and how somebody by the time they reach 65 years old has seen upwards of two million commercials, all intentionally crafted with a message. The message is you want to be happy, you want to, and and this newsletter took the tongue-in-cheek approach of this word bless from the Beatitudes and said, let's apply it to what modern TV tells us, uh, what modern culture tells us about how to achieve this happiness, this blessed state. And if you look at all the commercials, you start coming up with your own Beatitudes. Like blessed are those who fly to luxury vacation spots on tropical islands where they lie in chase lounge chairs, the only two people on an enormous white beach for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who drink much beer, for they shall be surrounded by carefree football-watching buddies and highly attractive, socially gifted women, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have the latest smartphone, for they shall gaze on a screen swirling with color and shall get all the information they need just when they need it, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have outstanding kids. Verily I say to you, highly blessed are those who have a golden laboratory retriever bounding along on the slow motion video day of playing with the kids in the park, for they shall be the envy of real families everywhere, and they shall be satisfied. In other words, it's circumstance manipulation. Is this sounding familiar? Remember in our series in Philippians, looking at what biblical joy is, gospel-centered joy, it's not just circumstances being right. Paul was teaching about a joy that transcends circumstances. Jesus taught it before him. It's, a, it's related, it's not the identical word, but it's related. When Jesus says blessed, he's using, a, 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 in, in Matthew 5 here, that word blessed is a, it's a Greek word. The root is makar, the word's makarios. It was a word that up to that point had been primarily reserved for Greek gods and goddesses. They were thought to be the only ones who could achieve makarios, that could achieve this level of happiness. Because it's a happiness that is not limited and is not dictated by human circumstances. It's a deep sense of contentment, happiness, fulfillment that people thought was unattainable to them. And now all of a sudden Jesus says, you can be Makarios. How? It goes back to a word that you said out loud a minute ago. What was the word? Kingdom. Jesus is saying, I've come to restore the kingdom of God to this world. Now, years ago, years ago weeks ago, we've, we talked and several times looking at the glory of God, the glory of God that covered the earth as waters covered the sea before the fall. Everything in the garden before Adam and Eve rebelled and said, God, I can be a normal, fulfilled man or woman without you. Before that sin occurred, the glory of God, his sufficiency, his beauty was perfectly overlaid and manifested. Then the the breach happened, the fall happened, and now there's plenty that goes on that you and I read about in news reports that don't glorify God, but we're headed as according to what Habakkuk 2 tells us to that day when Jesus has finished restoring all things to himself, when the glory of the Lord will once again cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Now parallel with the glory of God is the kingdom of God. Before the fall, 
The kingdom of God was perfectly overlaid with creation. Now, when I say kingdom of God, I'm not referring to a place, but a sphere, a realm in which God's rule is welcomed. When the fall occurred, there was rebellion. Rebellion in and of itself, by definition, refers to a rebellion against the king. And as a result, a curse came upon this planet. It's why you and I encounter stuff regularly that we say, this is not how it ought to be. It's the, the, the consequence of our rebelliousness saying, God, we don't need you to be normal or fulfilled. And God, in his graciousness, instead of destroying creation, said, I'm going to redeem it. This creation that no longer fully glorifies me, that no longer abides within my kingdom rule, I'm going to redeem. I'll pay the penalty for that rebellion. And what we're headed towards is one to the glory of the Lord, covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, and what Revelation says, we sing it every Christmas during Handel's Messiah, quoting scripture, where the kingdom of this world has once again become the kingdom of our God. But in the meantime, what Jesus came to do is to summon one person at a time to reorient their lives according to the beauty, the glory of God, and to submit their lives to the kingdom of God, to become part of the kingdom. So Jesus, we're told, launches his public ministry at the end of Matthew chapter 4, preaching the good news of the what? The kingdom. And he's saying, I am here to grant you entrance and access once again into the kingdom of our God, to experience the liberation of his rule. It's not suffocation. When we're ruled, we're liberated by his rule, by his leadership. And so the very first sermon that's recorded, he begins the Sermon on the Mount with these eight statements. And a lot of people think they're individual pithy statements that are meant to be embroidered or cross-stitched and put on magnets on refrigerators. And a lot of times we take those individual beatitudes and we focus on just one. Might get a card during a difficult time and on the front of it, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Does that apply? Of course it does. But those eight statements, listen very carefully, they're not eight individual isolated statements. They together are a cumulative unit in which Jesus is describing the entry back into the kingdom of God. What does it mean to enter back into the kingdom of God? It means to become a follower of Christ. What's it mean to become a follower of Christ? To receive him as Lord and Savior. How do I receive Christ? Jesus walked us through step by step, but they're cumulative. It's not just blessed are the poor in spirit and then you're done with that and you go to the blessed are those who mourn. That, that poverty of spirit becomes part of your heart's posture and then we add to that this mourning that poverty of spirit and then we become meek and submissive and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And after, after when you get through all eight, it's all a unit and it's not static, it's dynamic and it's continuing to grow throughout my journey. The more mature I become in Christ, the more I learn the symphony and the music and the dance of the kingdom. And it's because I'm cultivating each of these beatitude postures as if in a kingdom garden in my soul, in my heart. And a garden is plural. It's made up of individual plants, the whole of which is a garden. And Jesus giving us these individual statements, the whole of which is describing a follower of Jesus. So how do you begin? Some of you are not yet a follower of Christ, but you maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you're at a point saying, what does it look like 
What's first step I need to take? And Jesus says it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not just referring to getting to heaven. It's referring to the entry. Those who will own up to their poverty of spirit, theirs, and actually it's the, the, the Greek is emphatic. You can almost say theirs and theirs alone is granted entry into this liberated realm of the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, what does poor in spirit mean? Let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean material poverty. It doesn't mean poor spirited, low self-esteem. It doesn't mean wearing a sign on your back that says, I'm nobody, please kick me. It doesn't mean shy. It has nothing to do with personality types. It's not that somebody who's shy is poor spirited and somebody who's extroverted is, is the opposite. It doesn't mean mock humility. Those literature buffs out here, you know David Copperfield, Charles Dickens' masterpiece. There's a character in David Copperfield, his name is Uriah Heep. Some people think that was a band from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, they were named after Uriah Heep, though. There's a character in Dickens' novel, David Copperfield, and this guy was always talking about how humble he was. I'm a humble man. And he was actually a snake. He was a schemer. He was a manipulator. Poor in spirit is referring to none of those. To be poor in spirit is to own up to my poverty of spirit. If I want a makarios to be characteristic of my life, that means that really blessedness and its essence means to be approved by God, to live a life kissed by God. And the entry into that is for me to own up to my poverty of spirit and basically and fundamentally it's me saying, God, I need you. I need help. That's easier said than done because we've got this thing in us that doesn't want to acknowledge that we need help. And that's rooted in a lie. It's rooted in a lie about our own ability, our own sufficiency. So to be poor in spirit is really to be honest about who God is and therefore who I am. To be poor in spirit is to be honest about two characteristics. I'll give you just a summary, here you go. To be poor in spirit in a way that, that grants me entry into this dance of the kingdom is to be honest with God about two aspects of who he is. Number one, his character. And when I'm honest with God about his character, it produces in me something called humility. It's a quietness of spirit. It's a, it's a pliability. Several weeks ago, I said something during our worship time and then prayed. It was something I hadn't planned on saying, but on Saturday night I did. And once I say something on Saturday night, I got to say it the whole weekend. And the statement was this. It's something that I've believed for a long time. The statement is this. The, my view of God is the axis around which the rest of my life turns. 
Same is true for you. Same is true for every human being, even an atheist. It's not just for, for religious people. Any human being, their view of God is the axis around which their lives turn. If I have a low view of God or a non-view of God, it will amplify me to the point of ludicrous belief in my ability, thinking that I'm actually in control when I did not have any control over that even that last electrical impulse in my heart that caused it to beat. But it leads us down an illusory, an illusion of saying, you know what, I, I think I got this. I don't need any help. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our friend Pat Morley, part of Northland, who made the statement, I quoted him, that there's a Jesus who is and a Jesus we want, and they're not the same. Remember that? Uh, let me give you my rendition of that. It's, it's kind of taking it to the next level. There is a God who is and a God we need, and they are the same. Who is God? He's who I need. Because it's in him we move and we live and we have our being. And somebody who's poor in spirit is owning up to their spiritual bankruptcy that they do not have what it takes to be a normal, fulfilled human being. And it starts with being honest about who God is in terms of his character and his, his, his beauty, his holiness, his love. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, God says, you're my witnesses declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen so that you may know and believe in me and understand that I'm he. You see, there's several words there, know and believe and understand, they all go together. The more I know him and understand him, the more I believe and trust him. But he says, don't relate with the, the religious mascot that you wanna devise, relate with the God who is, relate with me. Before, so that you may know and believe and understand that I'm he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be any, one after me. You talk about a view of God being the axis around which your life turns. This is a high view of God. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I, you want some help? You can find it nowhere else but with me. Apart from me, there's no Savior. There's no help for redeemed humanity, restored humanity, fulfilled humanity. He says, I've revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. So, for me to cultivate a poverty of spirit in the garden of my soul means to cultivate an honesty with God about who he is. Isaiah, just a few chapters later in that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, the Lord says, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever and whose name is holy. He says, I live in a high and holy place. But also with the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says, I live in a high and holy place. He's not a little mascot that's following us around. He's the king of all creation. And when I begin to relate with him in his holiness, will, that will also involve me relating with, with him in his love, in his beauty, in his authority, and start to acknowledge that I do need him, that I am not sufficient in and of myself to be a fulfilled human being.
Oh, I can do a lot is an image of God. But ultimately, I need him. And he's not just a little half, you know, a couple inches taller than me and a few pounds stronger and a couple of grades smarter. He's high and exalted, whose name is forever. And a high view of God leads to an accurate view of me, but it also leads me into an accurate view of what it means to be a fulfilled human being, but it will take me humbling myself. Notice what the text says in Isaiah 57. We just read it in the last part of that. He says, I live in a high and holy place, but I love this, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. You see, One of the biggest enemies to me enjoying the dance of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom, is my pride of me saying, no, I don't need help. I got this. And our pride can be laughable, like me standing at a gas station beating the living daylights out of the hinge of a, of a car door. Our pride in just the way we relate with one another can be laughable. It's just amazing how entrenched we can get to the love, the, the, the story of this husband and wife, you ever had a fight and you married folks and you'd give one another the silent treatment for a few minutes, you know, nobody's going to be speaking. This couple took it to a whole new level. They had this fight and they didn't speak for over a week. They started writing notes to one another to communicate. Neither of them was going to break. They weren't going to be the first to cave. And it got to a point they couldn't remember who co committed the first offense anyway. But uh, about a week and a half after this silent treatment war started, the husband had to take a business trip. He was not good at getting up early. He was going to have to get up at 5 a.m. His wife was a morning person. He needed her to help him, but he wasn't going he, he to humble himself and break this whole silent thing. So he wrote a note, left on a sticky note that she would see on the door when she came to bed. Uh, I have an early morning flight. Would you please wake me up at 5 a.m.? The next morning he wakes up, it's about 8.55 a.m. Sun's blaring through the, the, the windows. He wakes up, he's missed his flight, he's missed the meeting where he was going. He's in big trouble at work. He starts to boil immediately and uh, why didn't she wake me up? And he reaches over to get his watch and his glasses from the nightstand and there on his nightstand was a note and the note said, it's 5 a.m., wake up. <laughs> And that's just like us, isn't it? And so we laugh at all the different things that our pride causes us to do and not do. But let me tell you something, when it comes to our walk with God, our pride can crush us because it puts us in a posture of resistance against the help that we actually need. That's why James says in James chapter four, verse six, it's an astounding statement. God opposes the proud he opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. C.S. Lewis, we got a good introduction to him a couple of weeks ago. He said there are two kinds of people in the world, those to, who say to God, thy will be done, and then those second category who refuse to, they, to say that, and so God says to them, have it your way. You don't want my help? Hmm. 
And when I have a high view of God, I have an accurate view of myself and realize that I am only complete with God. I'm only fulfilled as part of his kingdom. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. God says, that's a moldable heart that's malleable in my hands. Mary in her Magnificat, that song that she sang after the angel said, you're going to bear this son. It's going to be called, his name Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 53, she says this. She's quoting from Psalm 107. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things. He's filled the hungry with good things. But the rich, he sends away empty. Empty. Does that say, does that say there's somebody who's rich without God? No. It's just referring to the fact there's some people who think they are. There's some people who say, I don't need help. I'm good. I'm good to go. I don't need to go any further. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. And those who tremble at my word. That's when things can start going. When I say, God... I need help. Some of you have come in to this sanctuary, maybe online, and you're, you're, you're at the end of your rope and you're thinking, I've got to get it together in order to get God to like me enough to help me out. That is not the gospel. Christianity is based not on our sufficiency that we demonstrate to God, not on our impressive behavior, not on our goodness, but basically our badness. And that's owning up to our need and Jesus says, blessed, makarios, are those people that will actually be honest with God about who he is and therefore honest about who they are. And they'll be honest about God in terms of his character, which will breed humility, which is the exact opposite of what a lot of churches look like. A lot of churches, religious institutions are very proud places because they're thinking God's impressed with us. And it's a dangerous thing, even with churches like Northland that have had years and years of just an amazing history and run, then all of a sudden you start thinking, I think we got this. And let me tell you something, this is an exciting time in the life and journey of Northland Church. Exciting time to be involved here, but it will only prove to be fulfillingly so if we humble ourselves in his presence and say, we need help. We cannot rely on all the success of the past, but we need to rely on who you are now. And God says that, I mean, let's get going. Now we're in business. When an individual or a church says that, that's that poverty of spirit that's cultivated. It's an intentional engagement of honesty before God, but it's companion with a second engagement. It's not just being honest with God about his character that breeds humility. It's about being honest with God about his capability, which breeds receptivity. Capability. When I am honest with God about who he is, then I start becoming honest with God about what he can do. And who he is breeds in me a humility. He's God, I'm not. He's creator, I'm creature. But then his capability... What that starts to do is breed in me a receptivity saying, I'm ready. Isaiah, that passage we referred to a minute ago, look at it again, Isaiah 57, 
15, for this is what the high and exalted one, this is almost a parallel of the first beatitude in so many ways. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but I am so thankful, but also, but also, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly of spirit. There's the humility. Now hear the receptivity to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. To breathe, he says, I wanna breathe into your journey. And some of you came thinking, I don't know where else to go at this point. That is the best place to be. A lot of other people say, I got it together, but I think it would be nice to have God on my resume as well. To be poor in spirit is to say, God, I got nothing, and I need you. A favorite poem of mine is by a woman named Nancy Spiegelberg who says, early on before I had a high enough view of God, every now and then I'd come to him with a cup and ask for some help, every now and then. She said, but once I got to know him better, I learned to come running with a bucket But you know what? If God is God, that's, that, that bucket, that, that's not enough. And this is what every one of us needs to bring to him. And this is what we as a church needs to bring to him. None of this little polite religious stuff you know, God, you know, I'm doing all right, but maybe a little bit, a little, little bit. Hmm. Need some help? Yes, God. No, no, that's not enough help. That's not enough help. This is what I need. And he says, I thought you'd never ask. May God give you grace to be humble. May God give me grace to be humble. And to be humble is to be honest about who he is in his character and his capability. And then to engage personally in humility and receptivity. And may God give Northland Church the grace at this season of its journey and the story that is being written, to be humble, to be poor in spirit, to say, God, we need some help. And he will say, let's get started. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you're enough. There's a lot of needs represented here and online. Battles with physical stuff, medical stuff, work stuff, financial stuff, uh, sin stuff, doubt stuff, relational stuff. And we, we're in a culture of self-sufficiency, so we try to 
to mock that up. And you've made us as very capable people in your image, but our, our capability ultimately is rooted in the way that you've made us. Our, our capability is rooted in your capability. May you give us the courage as well as the grace to walk in, poor, in poverty of spirit, to be poor in spirit, because that is what will usher us into the blessings of the kingdom. Father, we pray for Northland at this time as, as we're embarking on a new season. It's about the easiest thing in the world and the hardest thing in the world at the same time to admit our need. But we do so. So would you inhabit these next about three minutes? as we do some business with you as individuals and as a community. In the name of the King who invites us into the kingdom, I pray this, amen. So before you go, we're gonna give you three minutes that could be some of the most significant minutes of your week, of your journey. And then I'm gonna give you the benediction. So this is not a time to get your stuff together, it's a time to get your soul together. What we're going to do is during this, throughout this series, we're going to have times of, of, of quiet reflection as, as God's preparing the soil of our hearts for this garden of the kingdom that he wants to grow in us individually and as a church. And we're going to use various art forms. Art tends to slow us down when we need to be slowed down. It gives us time to, to meditate, speaks the language of the heart. And Keenan and Simone have been so very gracious to be with us on the violin and cello and accompanied by some other members of our worship team. They're going to play over us for about three minutes. But while that's playing, you're going to see several dozen words of God's capability flash up on the screens. A few of those, the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you, this is, this is what I need. And, and here's the deal. I, I'd encourage you, you know, we've talked about during benedictions, I've said, Put your palms like this. It's a great posture of receptivity. I encourage you to do that right now. Just sit straight up, have your palms open, and don't have a receptivity this size or receptivity this size or this size, but how about here? And a few of those words, it's going to pop. That's what I need from you right now, God. Let him speak, and then I'll give you the good word.